We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our review of Evolution's Achilles Heels. And today we're going to be doing two chapters we can barely do one chapter <laughs> but today we're going to try to do the fossil record and the geologic record so how are you today bob uh, i'm fine thank you hampton but i just have to chuckle because you have more faith than i do in that regard i'm not sure we're going to get through that many chapters but i think you're going to drive so to speak today and we might go faster I could see that happening. <laughs> so, but I would like to start um, with some biblical material. So I want to read James chapter one, verses two through eight. My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. But if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously without reprimand and it'll be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord, since he's double-minded. He is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. And then further on in James, James talks about true wisdom. So he says the following, this is chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, he should show his works, done in the gentleness that wisdom brings. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfishness in your hearts, do not boast and tell lies against the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, for where there's jealousy and selfishness, there's disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, 
accommodating, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and not hypocritical. And the fruit that consists of righteousness is planted in peace among those who make peace. So one last passage. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we pray for those who rule over us in this country, um, that they would govern in such a way that we might be able to pursue God in peace. So we pray for wisdom because we lack that. And um, let's begin our time this morning together, Hampton. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, great. I knew you were. I want to read a couple pages from Naomi Wolf. She has a new book out called The Bodies of Others. It's concerning all the ins and outs of the COVID crisis. Um, she has an interesting section, couple pages, and um, I wanted to read those. There are lots of interesting pages in the book, of course, but these will orient us towards our task this morning. So she starts talking about an API. And you, as somewhat of a computer guy, know what that is. She says an APR, API, or application programming interface, is like a fire hose of data. It allows one software application to talk to another to send or receive information. If the data retrieved through an API are messy, programmers have to make sense of the data and develop ways to deal with any unexpected results they could receive from an API call. To make the data useful for a dashboard, Programmers also have to clean, combine, and format the data into workable data sets. These data sets can be fed into the back end of the dashboard. That is the part that developers and webmasters can see, but users themselves cannot. Developers can then take the nicely formatted data and create ways to show that data visually to users, building code to turn the data into what users see on the front end, or the UX, which stands for user experience. The way readers navigate the website on the front end is called the UI, or the user interface. This front end is what readers of the digital New York Times saw when they looked at the COVID map that was featured every single day on the paper's digital front page, or what those who went to the Johns Hopkins University Medicine Coronavirus Resource Center site saw when they went there in search of updates on COVID cases and deaths. The story of cases and deaths was told by multiple media outlets using the various 
third-party dashboards as their terrifying illustration, their proof. Yet few reporters click through to try to locate the raw data sets to verify for readers that what the dashboards showed them on the front end was really the full story. And few check to see if there were really indeed verifiable state health department data being aggregated or some other nonsense altogether. For the first month, perhaps, this ignorance could be excused as part of a learning curve around digital data. But when a year passed and two years passed and reporters were still citing digital dashboards uncritically, without understanding or, it seems, showing even any curiosity about what they were looking at, the excuse vanished. As noted, an API is a simple technology that can explain in 10 minutes, that can be explained in 10 minutes to any layperson. Take some, a uh, drink of my tea, Hampton. <laughs> okay. What reporters would not understand is a digital dashboard is not, in fact, a medical product. It's not a scientific product. A digital dashboard is not necessarily even generated from anything at all that corresponds to physical or biological reality. Cases tabulated on a digital dashboard are not necessarily generated from actual tests that are generated from real human biological samples. Deaths tabulated on a digital dashboard do not necessarily derive from any actual dead bodies recorded by real coroners in real hospital morgues or from funeral directors retrieving bodies from homes. A digital dashboard is simply a product of code that counts data inputs in a certain way. It counts what the developer told it to count. This data on a COVID dashboard that calls itself cases can be based on a real positive nasal swab from a real human nose translated into an accurate positive real test done at the correct cycle threshold, which result is then translated accurately into a snippet of code. Or the data calling itself cases can be just a snippet of code. The data on a digital dashboard that calls itself deaths, implying deaths from COVID, are only as good as the forms filled out to claim a cause of death on the way the deaths are counted as COVID. Anything at all can be counted as a case and any death can be misidentified as death. So anyway, she goes on to say, you know, you're not getting anywhere near accurate numbers when you see those things. That's all just media driven. Mm -hmm. So the, the point I was going to make about that reading that couple of pages, when we dive into the fossil record and the geological record of the earth, mostly as a citizen of Western cultures, what you're seeing 
is a dashboard. It's all filtered material. Any data that doesn't fit the dominant paradigm of long earth and evolution just gets filtered out. They never show you that. But there's tons of data that favors the um, new earth, right? Or the young, that's the word for it, right? Young yeah. earth, yeah, young earth. like not, not more than about 10,000. And that, that sounds staggering to people when they first hear that, you know, like, oh, you're just a, a Bible person, you know, you don't follow the science. No, I do follow the good science. Right. Well, I, I want to read I want to read a paragraph, two paragraphs that um, tied it to what, what you just said. Mm -hmm. This is in the, the second chapter, geology chapter, but he says, during these years of training, I realized that contrary to popular belief, the eons of time provided by geology are not based upon discoveries that geologists make, but flow out of assumptions that were accepted within the discipline over 150 years ago. In Darwin's time, these assumptions seemed plausible, were culturally attractive, and did work in some situations, especially with the data then available. However, our geologic, geological understanding of the earth has increased a thousandfold and more since then. It is rapidly becoming apparent that uniformitarian assumptions do not match the geological observations. A fundamental reevaluation of historical geology is necessary. However, this is such a daunting task that the geological establishment has been unwilling to face the upheaval. The corporate responses of the various professional geological societies have been to censor discussion and issue policy statements meant to marginalize alternative views. And that was what I was thinking about when you, what you were talking about. And you so, said that the evidence is accumulating and it is becoming clearer that there is a problem. It does not seem possible that geologists can avoid it forever. <laughs> well, yes, thank you for reading that. So the, the point I'm driving home, we've, we've made this all the way through our discussions of um, evolution and so on and actually made this point in many other podcasts your worldview functions as a filter and if your worldview is wrong you're filtering out real data and it'll lead you astray you're seeing the world um crookedly right you're being lied to and you don't know it. So it's, it's just, you, you just have to examine your worldview all the time to make sure it's true. So the worldview of an evolutionist starts with this basic assumption. There is no God. And so here's how we got here. Evolution is the only game in town. It has to have happened. So all the cases, you know, that demonstrate a young earth, they just ignore it because it doesn't fit their worldview. And yet those cases are overwhelming. That that data is clear. Right. right. So, okay. Well, let me try to summarize what I figured out or 
I think I learned. <laughs> who, well, who's okay? Well, who's our, our who is our our fossil record guy? Yeah, so we've got the fossil record chapter for by Dr. Emil Silvestru in Romania. There you go. And the geologic record by Dr. Tasman Walker. I really like that guy, not just because he has a cool name, like Tasmania, Australia, right? Queensland, <laughs> Queensland yeah. is in Australia. Yeah, he was cool. He because uh, he worked a long time in the mining industry, you know, just right as a manager of mines, and so he has that kind of. He comes he at going you going into Molly, Molly Kathleen, whatever that. Yeah, one. he mentioned that. Yeah, he mentioned going in that one in there in Colorado. I've been in that mine. Mm. Oh, have you? Yeah, we'll have to... I think it's in Cripple Creek. I have a T-shirt to prove it. <clears throat> <laughs> we'll have to read that little section. That was interesting. So well, go ahead. I, I got what, you. Off here's there. what I gathered. Um, he says that when evolutionists refer to the fossil record, it makes folks think that there is actually an historical record of fossils that traces or proves evolution. And then the geology chapter guy said the exact same thing that we talk about the geological record. And so they, people think that, you know, it proves evolution. And um, so he says there's the chapter four guy says there's a system of categorizing rock strata or layers. And those layers were supposedly laid down over 4 billion years. Um, and he mentions that both of them mentioned that. And then I guess Charles Lyell published a book in 1830 that kind of put forth the theory of uniformitarianism, which says that what we observe today in the speed at which we see things accumulating today has always happened in a uniform kind of time frame. And so it's taken billions of years. He pointed out that the Lyle guy was very anti-God in the Bible, and his whole theory was to come up with a way to do away with believing in the flood. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And then Mount St. Helens proved that to be wrong because 25 feet of layers were laid down in like one afternoon. Very good example. And, and then stalagmites. He talks about... Um, those you go into a cave and you see the stalagmites and they say you know these took thousands and thousands or millions of years to form and except for that four foot tall one where there's a coke can underneath it and you can <laughs> stick it out and and so, <laughs> so anyway <clears throat> yeah um so <clears throat> you let me let me dive in there pick to paint another little picture because i think people are used to if they have a visual of um the fossil record they envision a tree that that's how it's often presented and here's the nice solid tree trunk and here's the branches you know here's the mammal branch and at the end of the mammal branch here's the human beings you know that came off the ape kind of branch and so on Right? right, people can picture that in their minds. That's usually what you're presented with. Remember, that is the product of a filter. Let me just state it clearly: there is no tree. The fossil, what the fossil record actually looks like in the ge within the geological record, 
is a bunch of bones scattered everywhere. They're drawing that tree and putting those bones in places where they want to put them. That is not what you actually find in geology. Right. Darwin's biggest, it's interesting. Darwin's biggest critics when he, you know, initially wrote The Origin of Species was not theologians. It should have been, but it wasn't. It was geologists. Go, go, right they're going that well that's not what we see right <laughs> in, the, in the fossil record so i just want everybody to keep in mind that scenario is false that's an evolutionist arranging the data the way they want to arrange it that's not what's in the earth's crust yeah and and so what is in the earth's crust hampton and then i want you to dive back in looks exactly like what you would expect if there was once a worldwide flood. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I gathered from what he, this guy in chapter four was saying is that if you find a fossil in a rock layer, <laughs> like a dinosaur fossil that is 65 million years old, then they use that fossil to date the layer because they know the fossil is 65 million years old. What I didn't realize is that, you know, um, well, no, they they say this layer is 65 million years old yeah. and then they find the dinosaur bone. And then they yeah. turn around and they use the dinosaur bone to date the layer. Yeah, it's the most circular, yeah. it's the most circular reasoning you've ever seen. If you ask a geologist, how old is that sandstone there? 65 million years. Well, how do you know that? Well, because that uh, fossil's in there. Well, how old is that fossil? 65 million years. Well, how do you know that? <laughs> right? And they go, well, it's because. It's in that layer. <laughs> yeah, it's in that layer. And you're going, oh, I see. That That is literally how their game is played. I mean, we're making fun of it, but that is exactly what they do. Yeah. And so we'll get, you know, in, the, in our next chapter, if we can cover these two chapters today, it'll be great. But in the next chapter, they'll talk about how they date these kind of rocks, you know, scientifically, like radiometric dating oh, yeah. and carbon dating. It, let me tell you, it's not what you're presented with in the media. No, I thought it was also interesting. He said that, you know, when your geologists um, really like finding fossils, because otherwise it's pretty boring just having a bunch of layers of dirt. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you find some bones. <clears throat> so, mm -hmm. um, Here, let me let me read. I got a little section I want to read, if that's okay, or if yeah, you sure. want to. So he, this, the author of the fossil record chapter, you know, draws instead of a tree, <laughs> kind of draws closer um, cladograms, which is closer to the truth than a tree. Um. So he, he makes, he draws that. So you're looking at this picture, you know, of, of organisms and so on. He says, there's a number of conclusions we can draw from the fossil record, right? The real fossil record. First, far from continuous, the increase of complexity over time, if it happened at all, is discontinuous and sudden. Okay, that's the real data that anyone, any, that's the conclusion anyone would draw 
from the real data of the fossil record. Second, there are many groups of animals which do not seem to have evolved over very long periods of geologic time, a phenomenon noted and dubbed evolutionary stasis. <laughs> they don't. I think he evolve. gave an illustration of a jellyfish. That, well, it looks exactly and, like what you know, we have today. And, and so you have a jellyfish that lived 320 million years ago and the same exact jellyfish has survived today and looks the mm -hmm. same and so yeah. if you need to evolve to survive how come that animal didn't evolve and then did survive right and so there's no need for evolving in that case yeah and he explicitly gives another example here he goes the most stubborn example involves Dromatolites, colonies of cyanobacteria that have not changed over allegedly 3.4 billion years, except that the most complex colony forms are in the most ancient past. <laughs> Third, the most relevant evolutionary steps occurred in creatures that have not been discovered. Hmm. Fourth, if fossils are found outside the evolutionary order, the whole evolutionary history collapses. So it's it's just data of they're not when they show you that tree, that's fiction. And the, the primary thing they notice two two primary things in the fossil record. Sudden appearance, which is exactly what you would expect expect from Genesis 1 and the flood chapters. And stasis, right? They don't evolve. You know, another example, a fun one for me, you mentioned the jellyfish, but the um, coelacanth. Do you remember that mm -hmm. section? Oh, it's so, so, you know, oh, this fish is 70 million years old and it's the precursor to land mammals because it's got like a lobe fin you know and those eventually turned into feet right. so eventually eventually <laughs> the coelacanth you know was able to walk out of the ocean and live on the land that's the evolutionary story uh there <laughs> the gap in that reasoning is miles long but anyway <clears throat> that was the story until 1938, when a Japanese fishing boat pulled a coelacanth out of the ocean, a live one. <laughs> and, and they knew right away what it was. It's a coelacanth. They knew that because it hasn't changed at all from its fossil record. And then they found a whole colony of them and so on. But no, its, it's lobe fin hadn't turned into feet. It was the exact same as it's always been. So and they don't they don't uh, mention that. No, kind of bury right. the information. And... Exactly that. That's what I mean by they filter it out right. for you. So it, it's as if you, imagine sitting at your desk, and as you see, and it's imagine your desk is clean, and on the left side of your desk is the evolution model. And on the right side of your desk is the creation model. 
And so then you dig into the data and at every point where you can draw some conclusions, which model do you think that conclusion fits into? And it's always the creation model, right? The, the evolution models sort sometimes some of the data can fit in there, but only if you massage it and, and you make a bunch of presuppositions. Mm -hmm. Take take the um, coelacanth does not fit the evolution model, fits perfectly the okay, creation yeah, model. There was a lot of discussion about uh, the Cambrian and the pre-Cambrian time periods, and I I find it or found it confusing. Mm -hmm. Have all this three hundred and twenty million years or two hundred million years, and I felt like he should have put supposedly. Yes. In front of all of those numbers. Um, but I guess there would have been a lot of supposedly's in the chapter. But um, so that pre-Cambrian and Cambrian, Cambrian um, period, that was what you were just talking about. They have all these bones that just showed up at once and there was no gradual, you know, no miss there. The, all the links are missing. There were no transitional forms. Yes. Exactly. Well, think of this. So I'm sort of scanning forward in the chapter. And, you know, one of the sections is called the Cambrian Explosion. Okay, we're, we're not going to read that. I, I suggest this book to everybody so that you read this and get this data down. You know, it's tough sledding, but you can do it. Read it from, you know, the page so that you're familiar with it. But I just want to pause on the Cambrian Explosion for a second. That term is not a creationist term. The evolutionists called it the Cambrian explosion. So imagine your desk again, left side, right side. Left side is creation, or left side is evolution, right side is creation. The term explosion, what do you think that fits? The creationist <laughs> model, or right? The evolutionist model, right? Even simple things like that. Well, and, and just the the whole idea of fossils. You know, a, a cow dies in the pasture, and you know he, he just the he, the bones are not preserved. The no. scavengers come along, and everything just rots and disappears. And and so to have a fossil formed requires some catastrophic event like a flood. A rapid, rapid catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, and so, um, which again, fits the, the creation flood model and does not fit the gradualization model. So. Exactly. So the, the point with the, uh, the flood or the um, fossilization is that it's rapid. So catastrophes formed the earth. Again, your, your great example of Mount St. Helens, if you took a geologist there today and erased from his mind any knowledge that that was a volcano, that was that in the 80s, I think, the 1980s? Yeah, I was, living in, I was living in Spokane when it happened. Oh, God. oh my goodness. <laughs> did, did you see it live? I didn't see it, but there was ash everywhere, just layers of yeah. it. Yeah. And, uh, so the, the point is, if he didn't know about that and you asked him, you know, how old are these rocks? 
oh, 30, 40 million. No, 40 years. <laughs> right? This is how it happened. Volcano blew up. See, I think one thing that, that people are, you know, it's not in their mindset about the flood is that they think it was rain, all rain that covered the earth. It wasn't. There was rain. But the text says the floodgates of the deeps were opened up. So water was coming from below and above. It wasn't just a big rainstorm for 40 days. And that what that would have entailed geologically is phenomenal. It, it, well, people who haven't been to Texas can't imagine that much rain, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you could almost forgive them for that. <laughs> I know but, that when we were in Colorado and it would rain, I was like, this isn't rain. I don't even need an umbrella. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you, you, it can it can do some raining in Texas. Man, I remember my car one time. I mean, uh, coming over the hood of my car on, on the street, you know, running into a puddle that deep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one the rain is catastrophic, Hampton, that... It, the earth shows every sign of that, it, as opposed to what you mentioned earlier, the gradual inch by inch uniformitarianism. It hasn't been that way. It's been catastrophic. And there's overwhelming evidence to that effect. Right. Well, did you read the paper I sent you? On I did not. Okay. I haven't read that yet. So I have a cousin who is a seminary professor and he wrote a I guess he read this paper at an ETS meeting back in 2005 and um, so he it was a disappointed young earth guy huh? he became an old earth guy and in his lists of reasons he says one serious challenge to the global flood model is the amount of coal and oil deposits located in the earth such deposits are the remnants of buried vegetation. There simply could not have been enough vegetation growing on the earth at one time to account for all the deposits that have been found. And I just thought, you know, this is the fossil chapter. And what do we hear in the news almost daily is this, you know, shortage of fossil fuels, mm -hmm. you know, and I was disappointed at his disappointment because that's not where we get our oil and our gas right you know and right so i'm sitting there going how are you fooled you know mm -hmm. go back to our you know mark twain quote <clears throat> but i just thought what? it was kind of interesting yeah. that we we hear about fossil fuels and that's not where oil and gas are generated and <laughs> no rockefeller and that, i think it was made that term up just to make people think that the oil was going to be scarce uh, yeah driving up you know demand right right minimizing the supply driving up the demand yeah there's for anyone um you know worried about oil supply just off the top of my head we're not going to go into this in any kind of depth but do a little research on the bakken oil reserve that's like north dakota montana goes up a little bit into Canada and see how long you could run our planet on that reserve alone. <laughs> I heard the guy on the uh, podcast yesterday 
and he's a geologist and he um said that there's it might be that one i don't remember the name of the oil field that they have uh, gas field said it's larger than the next 10 largest oil you know re deposits yeah. combined yeah it's probably talking about the bakken reserve Maybe. it's it's huge i bet that's what he's talking about and we could tap into that whenever we want just just so people know you know the price of gas like today and it's going to go up here doesn't have to be what it is it's that price on purpose right so let me let me read this section because we talked about this briefly on another podcast but did you sort of chuckle when he referred to dr mary schweitzer that's the one i was explaining they found that t-rex in oh, 2005 yeah. Let me let me read that little paragraph that he has on her. So <clears throat> that may explain why the exceptional preservation of the soft-bodied marine organisms of the Burgess Shale came as a big surprise to this day. By the way, let me let me pause. Often you will see um, in the media scientists are surprised. Why? Why are they surprised? <laughs> because their model is wrong. Right? The creationists aren't surprised by soft tissue in dinosaur bones. Evolutionists are. That's because their model's wrong. So anyway yeah let me so let me finish this out because we'll get to mary schweitzer here uh to this day the chemical intricacies of the fossilization process remain a mystery for slow and gradual processes yet one discovery after the other has left paleontologists and biochemists perplexed the real shocker a paradigm changer was the discovery of preserved, soft, non-bony tissue from an unfossilized T-Rex bone by Dr. Mary Schweitzer. That initial discovery has been followed up by careful work to confirm and expand the initial findings. Multiple individual dinosaurs from several species, including theropods, hadrosaurs, and ceratopsids, have now been found with the non-fossilized organic remains, including decent recent claims of evidence for dinosaur DNA. If soft tissues and blood vessels uh, can survive for 65 million years or more, the whole concept of fossilization needs to be revised. This is not a pleasant prospect for paleontologists. An immense frustration is associated with it since it implies that over hundreds of years paleontological exploration and discovery preserved soft tissues may very well have been unknowingly discarded with the rock matrix surrounding the bones so part of what he's saying there is now they know to look for soft tissue in fossils and they find it frequently they never looked for it before because of their presuppositions, mm -hmm. because of their worldview. But they're finding that frequently now. 
So when he says it was a game changer, right, a, a paradigm shifter, oh, yeah, it should be. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's over. There is no more discussion. That dinosaur is not 65 million years old. It's no more than 10,000 years old. That well, evolution could not have happened. Yeah, there was another section in the chap geology chapter, which I felt like had more interesting fossil information. Than yes, yes. But, um, no, that's right. Talked about the posture of the bones. When they find a full dinosaur skeleton, they always have an arched neck, like their their head is way back. And almost like they're in trauma. Yeah. And and so they were like, why is why did this happen? And I guess their the explanation is that their head was heavy and those the back of their neck tendon was very strong. And when they were drowning and their head was buoyed, is that how I can't pronounce mm -hmm. that word by the water, that they all kind of got an arched back and an arched neck. And so it, you know. They concluded that all these dinosaurs, and I think almost all of them that they've ever found were like this, they all drowned, which, again, fits the flood. Yeah, yeah. Here, <laughs> That's a good point, too. So it was a catastrophe, right? Right. So there, there was some volcano eruption. There was an earthquake. There was something like that that caused, you know, a great mudslide or whatever and trapped them and uh, fossilized them, like, within minutes. Yeah, almost. Right. It wasn't this 65 million year slow, gradual process. Um, here's another point from the evolution guy, or the uh, fossil record guy that Hampton took me a long time to grasp this. Uh, what I mean by that, you know, maybe a half hour I'm, I'm reading the material and it, he made this statement and I stopped and thought, what are they? What's he saying there? What are the implications of that? So let me read this. This is a um, old Earth guy, right? Billions of years old and evolutionist. And he made this statement. So it's quoted, you know, referenced. There is no precise way to test whether Julius Caesar and Princess Diana were members of the same species, Homo sapiens. Does that sound strange to you? Yes. So well, I stopped. I don't have 30 minutes to think about it. <laughs> yeah. So I stopped. I'm like, what? What is the point is, let me read that again. There is no precise way to test whether Julius Caesar and Princess Diana were members of the same species, Homo sapiens. I mean, there's got to be, right? But he's saying there is no precise way to do that. That's an evolutionist. So you just have to look at their skeletons. Well, but go, so the, they look like they're the same yeah, species. The, the final takeaway is they can arrange that fossil record any way they want. There, there's no precise way to do that, right? That That's not science. That is literally whatever your presuppositions are, that's the way you can form it. Didn't we read earlier in this book that they have a tendency to come up with a new species 
if there's a time difference or a continent yeah. difference or yeah. whatever. And so we really, you know, they just make it up and it's the same exact animal. Yeah. And they say, oh, here's a missing link. No, it's the exact same thing that was in that fossil record that you found earlier. They're, they're so desperate to find missing links. And I'm going to keep that name regardless of, right? They want to call them transitional. You know, you, you know that or story, right? The, yeah, Stephen you Gould, told me that. Stephen Gold uh, at some paleontology conference said, we got to ca stop calling them missing links or they'll uh, think they're missing. And so they now yeah. call them transitional forms. Yeah. So here's here's one part of this guy's takeaway. He says, the absence of transitional fossils within the fossil record is not an argument per se against their existence, of course. So the evolutionary excuse that the fossil record only preserve, preserves moments in time, while transitional forms represent periods of time, is not completely absurd. However, it is absurd and outright unscientific to claim that absence cannot be used as argument against the very concept of transitional forms, especially since the story that the fossil record presents is far from satisfying to the evolutionary paleontologists. So it's, they don't have them. They don't have those transitional forms. And every time they try to say, you know, oh, here's how the whales came about. See, a cow started to walk into the ocean and boy, it would be beneficial if his tail became a flipper and his feet became fins. So here you go. And then they'll show like a walrus or something. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it's all fiction. It's yeah. literally fiction. And I'm, I don't want to be thought of as just like a, Oh, you're a swim coach, you know, dabbling in a field that's, that's not yours. I'm not a paleontologist. I can tell you I am able to read. And even though they have a big vocabulary and this and that, when you actually boil down what they're saying, it's fiction. And that's often been demonstrated, right? The very first thing you'll hear about any, quote, new uh, missing link is it's a missing link. Oh, big splash in the media, right? Until maybe 10 years goes by. And the journal articles start to say, you know, that really wasn't what we thought it was. And <laughs> right. Like, do you remember the picture of that thing that was a river otter? Yeah. And they, right. And they're saying, oh, this is a transitional link, blah, blah, blah. No, it's a river otter. Just like we've always known there are. They showed like the true drawing of its skeleton. It's a river otter. It's, it's not a thing that it, it's not a transitional form. So anyway, you have to wait when you see that stuff in the media, you have to wait till the experts have time to really go over what they're finding. And invariably, what, what you learn is, now nah, it's not really a transitional thing. We already had that fossil somewhere else. Wasn't there a, there a, uh, Lucy was a, yes, they fake. named some chimpanzee bone. Right. They thought it was a missing link. Yeah. This right. guy in the geology chapter goes through and has that a whole bunch of stuff about diamonds. They thought that took a long time and 
Yeah. How long does it take? A couple weeks? I think, uh, yeah, there's some place that now can make 40 diamonds a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then opal. We're often told that. Or yeah. coal. How, how long does it make coal? Take to make coal. Millions of years, you know, yeah. the slow compression, the pressure, the heat. They can make coal in days, right? They can supply the pressure. That stuff can happen really fast. And, right. and then there's, you know, stuff like ice formation. How, oh, see, this takes so long. They have examples of that taken like an afternoon. Right. So it, it's once again, we're back to this model. On the left side of your desk is ancient earth, you know, billions of years evolution. Right side of your desk is young earth, no more than 10,000 creation. All the data fits in the creation model. And much of it does not fit in the evolution model every time. So, you know, what do you conclude over time? We were created, just like God said. Well, he also, the geology chapter, he talked about the Molly Kathleen mine. And you said you had something you wanted to. Well, let me find that. I just kind of wanted to read it. Did you guys like visit that as a family? You know. I went to down inside of mine in um, uh, Leadville. Mm -hmm. I went down oh. inside of a, a mine in uh, near Cripple Creek in Cripple Creek, and I think the Molly Kathleen one is the one in Cripple Creek. Okay, so it was very interesting, and it was very cold. I was in shorts and short sleeves, mm. and uh, we weren't planning on we weren't thinking when we decided to go there. Well, let me find, so I'm tapping through my Kindle. This will just take a second. Okay. Yeah, so he's in this section of, like, so it's called stalactites and stalagmites. Caves, often adorned with stalactites and stalagmites, that form picturesque spires, columns, and shawls are popular tourist destinations. Almost without exception, the tour guides describe the cave decoration as forming over hundreds of thousands, even millions of years. The same story is told in geology textbooks, which also report that radioactive dating has measured these immense ages precisely. Hmm. <laughs> Sometimes a humorous situation will arise during a cave tour as a guide is explaining the great age of the stalactites, a tourist may notice fresh growths on a handrail, light fitting, or discarded drink can. When Gary Livesay and his family visited the deserted Molly Kathleen gold mine in Colorado, USA, they found stalactites and stalagmites growing from the ceiling, floor, and walls. The fine straws were hollow inside and dominated many parts of the mine, many having grown all the way from the roof to the floor. An old wooden chair had stalagmites sitting on it. A small stalagmite was even growing up from a discarded explosives container. In places, the columns were profuse, like bars in a jail or pipes on an organ. Some were up to 2.7 meters. 
and 10 to 12 centimeters in diameter. At most, this cave decoration had only been going growing for 20 years since mining operations ceased and airflow to the tunnels was shut off. At most, it was 20 years old, not millions. Yeah, nine feet tall. Yeah, not millions. So which model does that fit? But you're never told that. You're, you're, you're always, the information is always filtered through the evolutionary model. It's just not accurate. Well, um, anything else in that chapter that stood out? I mean, he talks about the petrification and finding the petrified teddy bear. Yeah, but so it, that's another example of it, it takes millions of years for wood to be petrified. No, can happen in, in months, weeks, right? If the conditions are right, it doesn't take that long. Diamonds, coal, that stuff does not take as long as you've been told. They can do that quickly. So he goes through numerous examples like that. So anyway, it's good reading. Again, recommend the book so you get all that data. Uh, but we're not going to take the time to read through every one of those today. Right. Okay. Well, see, we did cover two chapters. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because you were driving. So, I, well, how about the maybe one last section, Hampton? Because okay. I'm th this one should be. Let me read a couple pages of this. It, it, then we'll wrap up. You've okay. done a great job steering us through this, but th this is important for us. Everyone knows, don't they? There was an ice age. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's read about that and see whose model that fits. So the, you know, imagine you're back at your desk on the left side is the billions of years old earthing. That's another name for that is uniformitarian, right? It's always happened by these slow gradual right. processes. So concerning the ice age, Hasman, I love that guy's name, writes, the uniformitarian paradigm fails to explain the ice age. But biblical history does. Today, some 10% of the Earth's land surface is covered with ice sheets and glaciers. But there was much more ice cover in the past. The evidence for greater ice includes distinctive U-shaped valleys cut by glaciers. Rocks that are scoured and scratched. Broken rock called tilite pushed by glaciers into mounds called moraines and erratic boulders dropped by floating ice into sediment. When Louis Agassiz presented the evidence for the ice stage to scientists at Neuchâtel, Switzerland in 1837, the audience was opposed and critical. It was decades before the idea was accepted. One major problem was, and still is, what caused the Ice Age? Why did it start and why did it stop? So let's read that. I, I think that really benefits our listeners. But I want to pause before I read on. So Agassiz, Harvard guy, I think, geologist, the prominent guy in his day, he was the first guy to say, you know, there was once an Ice Age. He was, for 20 years, 
completely ridiculed. Wow. You know what you know a parallel to that, Hampton, is you, you could have used this the phrase we use today. Agassiz was a um conspiracy theorist. <laughs> oh, turns out he was right. <laughs> I, I saw a t-shirt. I need some new conspiracies because all my other ones came true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. So let's let's read our ideas that long age scientists have proposed include. So here's how they explain the ice age. Large meteorite impacts, super volcano eruptions, and changes in things such as atmospheric carbon dioxide, the sun's solar output, and orbit of the moon. By the way, let me pause there. All of those are catastrophic. None of those are uniformitarian. Right. right? <laughs> but anyway, the most popular idea today relies on the Milkanovich cycles, where changes in the tilt of the Earth's axis and in its orbit around the sun would make the climate cooler every 41,000 years or so. One problem with all these ideas is that the proposed effects are too small. They do not cause a large enough change in the temperature. So it's further proposed that there must be a positive feedback mechanism that amplifies the change. The possibility of positive feedback has made today's climate scientists worried that a small change in climate may cause a large instability. Hence, global warming fears are partly due to a misunderstanding of Earth history. Another problem is that a cooler Earth will not cause ice to build up on the continents. It'll just create a cold desert like most of northern Siberia and Antarctica today. For ice to build up, we need increased precipitation of snow and ice. Biblical geology provides an obvious and simple explanation for the start and end of the Ice Age. The evidence for the Pleistocene Ice Age indicates it was very late geologically, which means it occurs occurred after the global flood. The flood is the key. Being a catastrophic tectonic event, much volcanism occurred, and this heated the oceans warmer than they are today. Indeed, ice cores show evidence of warmer oceans in the past, which we place immediately after the flood. This evaporated the water needed for the ice accumulation. The warm oceans increased evaporation, which precipitated as snow and ice on the continents. Okay, and then you get two more pages of, you know, intense geological stuff mm -hmm. explaining all that. Again, it fits the creation model perfectly. It has no place in the ancient Earth evolution model. Doesn't fit at all. Right. Well, there was just came to mind. He mentioned um, fossil structures, trees that grow through right in the, the middle earth. of the coal vein. Yeah, and yeah, and so if you know, they would say that these layers represent ten million years. And yet there's a tree that's growing through <laughs> all of them. And so there's no way that tree is 10 million years old. <clears throat> right. No, that's common. That's yeah. common. You'll never see that in the media. 
Well, I, that, I read a long time ago about the Columbia River Gorge up in southern Washington, northern Oregon, I think. Mm-hmm. And they had signs about how all this stuff took millions of years. And some geology park ranger guy started showing them, you know, no, this is no way this is, you know, that's a, maybe a situation like that tree we just talked about. And, and he actually was able to get the signs changed to show that this Columbia River Gorge was uh, created, Catastrophic. In, created in, in weeks or Yeah, months, the runoff. You the know, runoff the of a great flood. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's read the last, then, then we'll close it out, Hampton. The last uh, thing that Tasman had to say, which will lead us into our next chapter. Clearly. The geologic record does not support the grand-scale evolutionary timeline. It has become a significant Achilles heel for evolutionary theory. So then he leads us into the next chapter, which will be on, you know, dating, radiometric dating, carbon dating, stuff like that. Which I think everybody believes is accurate. (laughs) They do. Well, because it's... Again, it's you know messaging. Yeah, it's, it's always presented, presented that, way. that way. It's presented that way. Yeah, and we'll, we'll read some good examples about that stuff. Okay, well, we did it. We'll talk to you next time. Great job, Hampton. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Perfect.